Hi, Hi Rock. My name is Megan, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad to be with you today. Can you remember the first time you lied? I think back to when I was four or five years old, and my little brother Cameron and I were playing, and I got a hold of my mom's notary public stamp. I thought it was magical, <laughs> so I used it all over my mom's freshly painted dining room walls. <laughs> I stamped from the floor to as high as I could reach over and over again until the ink ran out, and then Cam and I went to go do something else. Eventually, I heard, Megan! I knew by the tone of my mom's voice that something was wrong, but I didn't know what till I saw her standing by my beautiful stamp mural. I was confused. Her tone was angry, but I didn't know why. So when she asked me, Megan, did you do this? I just said, no, not me. Suddenly clicked that what I had done wasn't right in my mom's eyes. And so when I decided to stamp the wall, I just thought that it would be beautiful. And suddenly I was more afraid of the unknown consequences of my decision. And I thought it would just be easier to lie. Now, in the case of the wild stamping, it was pretty easy to see the truth of the situation. The stamp line stopped just as high as my arm could reach, and my brother was too short for that. I was literally caught red-handed. <laughs> but the lie felt safer somehow. I remember feeling scared of what my mom thought about me in that moment. She'd always told me that she loved me, but did this change that? I couldn't undo the stamping, so how was I ever going to make this right? I couldn't. So maybe, just maybe, if she believed my lie, things could be okay. My mom would still love me. I could still be perfect in her eyes. Now, some 30 years later, I wish that I could say only children believe that lying is the only way through hard situations, but we've all seen and experienced the reality that most adults would rather believe a lie than a truth. And in fact, we find it easier to live out lies than to live out truth. Just think about what lies you prefer to the truth. Could be as simple as saying, fine, when someone asks how you're doing, even though your mental health is failing. Or pretending that time has healed wounds in your family, even though they get opened up every time you're together. Maybe it's the lie that your marriage is fine or that your kid is thriving, even if the truth is you're struggling. Maybe you're struggling with an addiction or at your job, but sure, we're just fine. Perhaps even more insidious is the reality we can lie to ourselves, too. Scientists have studied areas of our lives that contribute to our sense of worth, like money, politics, social status, and intellect. Because these are areas where we differ from others, it can create insecurity. But self-deception allows us to inflate our opinion of our own abilities and morality. We all have to make choices around how we spend money or vote, or where we live and who we associate with. And so we tell ourselves that we are smarter that we are more moral and more savvy than others around us so we can overlook the repercussions of our choices. Even when the consequences of our choices are devastating, we'll still lie to ourselves about who we really are. We're not that bad. And we'll show greater conviction, almost like double down on our opinions and decisions. And then in turn, that helps us persuade others that we're really not that bad either. We might, start, we might start lying about ourselves because, like four-year-old me, we don't want to lose respect or love from other people. That somehow if people saw who we really were or what we were really thinking or doing, they'd be disgusted and throw us away. But the consequence of our lying to keep up appearances comes with its own costs. If I think that you like the image I project of myself instead of the real me, it follows that you might not like the real me if you actually got to know me. It's better to live with fake friends and shallow relationships than with nothing at all. So we live life with our filters on, removing every blemish and imperfection. 
But instead of being connected, we are further separated from each other, from our real selves. And perhaps for some of you, you feel a deep separation from God. You have questions that feel too scary to ask. You have shame around certain areas of your life. And so it's easier to just lie to God too. You could show up in your small group or on Sunday mornings, and you mean it when we get to the practice of confession in our service. Yes, God, I am truly sorry. I humbly repent. I want your forgiveness. But by the time you leave worship that day, nothing has changed about the way you live. You feel so far away from God. But it's easier to lie than to believe that anything could change. That isn't the whole story. Because our Christian communities and our acts of worship aren't centered around us or our ability to fix all that is broken about this world or about ourselves. No, the church is centered around our God, who has and is creating new possibilities everywhere. Our current sermon series has been exploring the Apostles' Creed and affirming together the things about our God that draw us and form our identity in the world. Today we're going to explore what it means that God, through Jesus Christ, has forgiven our sins. Friends, it's this claim of Christianity that changes everything. It invites us to consider that our lives don't have to be separated by sin anymore or lived with a filter. The forgiveness of sin invites us to live into a reality where God has removed the separation between us and God, between us and each other, and even the separation within ourselves. We can be people who stand in the truth instead of people who scrape by on lies. Our text today comes from a letter to a church of early Christians who were faced with the same pressures to sin that we are, to choose separation from God and one another instead of living in the freedom of forgiveness. And I think that this text can actually help speak truth to us in ways that can set us free. This letter, like John's Gospel, uses metaphors like light for God and darkness for a life that is separated from God, a life of sin. This dramatic difference helps us understand the contrast between who God is and what life is like outside of God. God is light. In God is all truth, and God is the very standard of integrity. God's not faking it. There's no filtered self or or true self for God. No, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I wonder if God's perfect righteousness is a part of what magnifies our need to live, live two lives, to have this real self and a filtered self. We read that we can't claim to have a relationship with God and walk in darkness, so we just ignore that part of ourselves. Maybe you wonder if you have to be perfect in order for God to love you, sort of like I wondered about my mom after I wrecked her wall. I think that sort of thinking says more about us than it does about God. We live in a world where we expect perfection of others and of ourselves. When we don't achieve perfection, we have to work hard towards it. And if we've really missed the mark, then there's a price to pay. You didn't get a good enough score on your test? Better retake it. Didn't hit your sales numbers this quarter? Better not take that vacation you had planned with your family. Something's got to give. you got to hit those numbers. Your meal didn't come out fast enough when you went out to eat? Well, that's 5% off the tip. Think about our criminal justice system. If you break the law, you're punished. In some cases, you are physically separated from the rest of society. You have to pay your debt to society, and then you'll be forgiven. But even then, as you might hear from some high rockers who have gone through the system, you might never be fully reintegrated. It might feel like you are never fully forgiven. Earlier in my faith, I think that I superimposed this understanding of forgiveness onto God. I knew God was perfect and I wanted to live in God's light. 
So I would try so hard not to sin. But of course I did. And God hates sin. And so it was, it was hard to reconcile the fact that Jesus had to pay a price in order for me to be in a relationship with God. That somehow my sin changed the way that God looked at me. Instead of love, when God saw my true self, my real self that wasn't filtered, God looked on me with disgust. There was a debt that needed to be paid that I was incapable of paying. So God should punish me for this. And in fact, death is the appropriate punishment. I thought that that's what the Bible said, but instead, you know, instead of punishing me, God sent Christ to be punished in my stead. Christ is paying the debt that we've all accrued from sin by dying on the cross. And God's hatred of me because of my sin was appeased. In the church, there's a fancy word for the forgiveness that God offers. God repairing his relationship to humanity. It's the word atonement. And this particular view is called penal substitutionary atonement. In layman's terms, it would say that it was only because Jesus died that God wanted to forgive us. And that even still, God would look on us with disgust if it weren't for Jesus. For me, in my early childhood, and, and perhaps for you, this was the only way to understand the cross. One of the Covenant's founding theologians, Peter Paul Waldenstrom, took issue with this framework. He said it wasn't biblical and that it was, in fact, more shaped by human legal systems than the Bible. He said that if God were actually constant, the same yesterday, today, and forever, then our sin wouldn't change God's character or posture towards us. It wasn't God's anger or disgust that created the separation between us and God. It was the change that occurred in humanity that created this separation. Think back to the Genesis narrative. This is a text that helps us see how God created humans and gave them a garden where every need that they had would be met. Food, shelter, companionship, and a purpose. They were also given a limit to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The text doesn't tell us why they were given this limit, but maybe that's the point. Every need that they had was met. And they could fully rely on God who made them, knew them, and loved them. But that also meant trusting God's limits for them, even if they couldn't understand them. Enter the interaction with the snake. This is the first time where we see the creator's trustworthiness questioned. The limit that used to be just a given was now scrutinized as though it were just an option. And so they took that option. Suddenly, they have no interest in the purpose that they had before. They were supposed to be tending the garden. And and they were not interested in being sustained by the garden because they don't actually have energy for that anymore. Their interest is now totally selfish. They're consumed with their new apparent freedom and the fear of unknown consequences that came with it. Adam and Eve created a filtered self out of clothing and in hiding. Adam and Eve created a separation from God when they treated their natural limits of their humanity as options instead of givens. What we don't see in this text is God's heart changing towards them. In fact, the whole arc of scripture is overflowing with God's heart consistently chasing down people in love and inviting them to trust him again. But we also see that people continue to live a life that distrusts God. They continue to create a separation between God and people. So yes, (laughs) there is a need for reconciliation with God, to be brought back into one whole trusting relationship, but not for the purpose of appeasing God. 
Rather, reconciliation removes everything else that we would rely on instead of God. That is removing our sin. But we couldn't do that on our own. Because no matter how much we try, we aren't perfect. We're selfish and untrustworthy. We have mixed motives and actions. Our filtered selves don't fool God, even if we can try to fool ourselves and others for a while. But God is light, and in him there is no darkness. God is love, and God loves us. And this is why it matters that Jesus came out of God's love to remove our sin. Because the purpose of the cross isn't to change God's anger at us or God's love. It's to change us. The cross allows us to understand the depth of God's love. It covers our sins, making us reconciled with God in perfect love and truth. This is the difference between a debt being paid and a debt being forgiven. Payment is like an economic transaction that can be completed. If I decide to buy this shirt, I pay the price for it. It's given to me, and I don't need to have any further relationship with the seller because our business is finished. But I've been in a relationship with Sally Mae for 14 years, and I've still got another three to go. <laughs> Unlike the youths in that picture, I have no desire to have a relationship with these lenders. But we have one, and it's completely defined by my debt. Once I've paid it, y'all, we are done. <laughs> If we apply this to explaining Christ's work on the cross, I just don't think that it translates. It would say that God, in his righteousness, just looks on us with disgust, only seeing the debt that is owed. This is the debt that frames our relationship. So we accept Jesus' offer to pay our debt, but then is our relationship with God over too? I mean, Jesus has taken care of our sin, has paid our debt, and we can just be done investing any more in our relationship with God. So we can say we don't have any sin, and yet we still experience the separation that exists between us and God. Because living as though we don't have any sin continues to separate us from other people, too. Earlier in our marriage, Brad would talk to me about something I'd done to hurt him. And I would respond with, well, that wasn't my intention. I would follow it up with all the reasons why my behavior wasn't really hurtful. And basically, he needed to now apologize to me for assuming the worst about me. Brad told me I had caused a separation in our relationship. I told him he was wrong. <laughs> there was nothing I needed to do, and I could go along with my day. But inside, I felt awful. I really didn't think that I had done anything wrong, but I could see that I had hurt him. And I didn't want to lose the moral high ground, so I was stuck. It was better to lie, because I felt better about myself. But the gap between us got wider and the hurt didn't go away. If we let these patterns continue, they start to build on top of each other, and the gap between our real self and our filtered self, between us and others, between us and God, grows wider. No one decides to live in darkness overnight. It's a lot of small choices that keep adding up. And when we say we don't have any sin, we lie to ourselves, we lie to others, and we lie to God. In this debt and payment framework, many of us realize we could never pay back the debt that is owed. So we'd rather lie and say that we don't have sin in the first place. I think this is the trap that many folks who've been in the church for a while fall into. In every other area of our life, our progress is measured by our accomplishments and our growth. When we reduce sin and forgiveness to debt and payment, well, we want to make sure that our debt is getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> We like it when our leaders and our elders seem perfect. 
They have all the answers. They don't sin. Maybe that's why it's all the more shocking when we find out that one of our spiritual role models has a sin revealed. We want them to be sinless. We don't want them to have a debt to be paid. If they have a debt, what hope is there for us? I felt that pressure as a lifelong church kid. Being the perfect Christian meant not sinning, right? A sinless life was going to be compelling to all of my non-Christian friends. I didn't have a debt Jesus needed to pay for me. He could use all of his saving grace on the new Christians who who needed it so much more than me. Well, (laughs) that fell apart pretty much in the middle of high school. I was lying to myself and others that I wasn't sinning. But I was living two lives. I still had my public-facing life that was seemingly sinless, but there was an entirely different life where I was pretty much just leaning into sin all the time. (laughs) But I could sort of ignore that private life. I just kept God out of it. I honestly could have said at that time I wasn't sinning, and I think I would have believed myself. Self-deception is a powerful trick. Do you resonate with that? This notion that your public-facing Christian witness needs to be sinless? Does that conflict with your inner reality? Eventually, I couldn't keep up my double life. I was so tired from lying all the time. But my debt was so heavy, and I felt like I could never repay it. So one day in my dorm room, I told God, Hey, I know you're there, but I need to stop lying. I can't be perfect. So I don't want to keep piling more onto this debt, so I'm just canceling this line of credit. I'm not going to call myself a Christian anymore. We're good? We're good. (laughs) I didn't know it at the time, but in that moment, I was actually doing the very thing that scripture invites us to do when sin separates us from God. I was confessing. The word confess really just means to say the same thing, to say the truth. After years of lying about my perfection, I was able to finally say the same thing about myself that God already knew. I couldn't be perfect. I was a sinner. And I didn't want Jesus to have to pay my debt but I couldn't do it on my own. So yeah, it was easier to just walk away. Believing that being loved by God was predicated on perfection seeped into every other relationship that I had. I thought I needed to be perfect for my family. So when I wasn't, I felt ashamed and I pushed them away. I felt I needed to be perfect in order to have a good dating relationship. So when I wasn't, I thought all I deserved was an abusive one. My separation from God because of sin seeped out to cause separation with others and within my own sense of worth. Two years after that moment, I was sitting through a year-long assignment in my philosophy class. We were answering the question, what is love? We poured through ancient and modern writers, we watched movies and listened to music, and we got into scripture. I found myself in Matthew's Gospel and in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There's a section in chapter 5 that has the header, The Law of Love. It says this, You have heard that it was said, You must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those that harass you, so that you'll be acting as children of your Father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, What more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. This was revelatory. God's love wasn't predicated on me being sinless. 
In fact, Jesus said that God loved and provided for the righteous and the unrighteous. And Jesus was calling his followers to love other people like God, to even love the people who hurt them. This didn't sound like conditional love or even love that had to be paid for. It felt like overflowing, unconditional love. It hit me like a brick wall. God loved me like that. I didn't have to be perfect, but this was perfect love. I didn't have to be afraid of God's perfection because God loved me with this perfect love. John tells us that there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear expects punishment. The person who is afraid has not been made perfect in love. This is the difference between Jesus paying a debt on our behalf and God forgiving our sins through Jesus. We're expected to repay our debts. We incur them willingly, knowing their full cost. When the debt is paid, the relationship concludes. But a debt that is forgiven? That is an act of grace on behalf of the creditor. It does the opposite of payment. Instead of concluding the relationship, it strengthens and deepens the relationship. The debtor responds in gratitude with a full confession of their own limits and the great kindness of the creditor. This resonated with me in my moment of receiving forgiveness from God. I knew, I knew that God saw all of me, all of the ways that I had sinned against God and against other people. God saw all of the lies that I had lived instead of living in the truth, and God still loved me. <laughs> I could confess all my sins. I could speak the truth about who I was. I'm a sinner, and I'm loved. Because of forgiveness in Christ, walking in the light doesn't mean that we'll never sin. Rather, it means that we continually tell the truth about our sin to ourselves, to others, and to God. It is leaning back into the trust that God will provide whatever is necessary for us, whatever is necessary to do this cleansing work, instead of having to rely on ourselves. When we experience true forgiveness, we don't have to keep on keeping up this filtered existence of keeping up appearances. Instead, we can respond with gratitude and begin to live in Christ the same way that he did. We get to be people who practice forgiveness too. I used to think that my perfection would be a witness to Christ, but after experiencing real forgiveness, I realized it wasn't about me being perfect at all. Our communities are wonderful, High Rock. I mean, they are places of curiosity and humility, honesty, solidarity, hospitality. But above all that, they are marked by Christ. And in a world that expects perfection, we gather around confessing our sin. In a world that says that limits are optional, we gather to honor the limits that God gives us in care. In a world that says debts must be paid, we gather to offer that same reconciling forgiveness that was offered to us. Hirak, I want our church to be a place where people experience real forgiveness from sins. But that's going to start with us confessing that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. That we, we too find it easier to lie to ourselves and lie to others and lie to God than to walk in the light of truth. So practically, I think this has to start with being honest with ourselves. Is there an area of your life where you're separated from God? Where you're lying to yourself? I'm going to practice what I'm preaching with y'all. <laughs> I find myself right now in a season of lying to myself about my capacity and my resiliency. 
I'll lie and say, I'm strong enough for now. I'm healthy enough for now. And, and some of that is true, but it's, it's only a half truth. <laughs> I need to stop lying and acknowledge that I am carrying some weight that isn't mine. I feel a separation from God where I wonder why there aren't more people to help do some of this work. I can feel alone. That's another lie. <laughs> and it makes it hard to trust God's provision in these areas. So I'm going to give you a moment right now to consider this question for yourself. Is there a lie that you need to confess? While we might feel like our confession is just between us and God, this is actually one of the ways that our lies can continue on longer. I found that it's just too easy for me to go back to lying to myself. When I find myself recognizing my sin, like the one that I just named for you all, I confess it to Brad, but also to some colleagues like Walt and Ryan. They each want more for me than a life that stays stuck in this lie. And so they help speak the truth of what God offers in a way that I can hear it. We are called to bring each other back into the truth of God's love and God's ways. So when a member of our community confesses, we can rejoice this person is finally speaking the truth that God has said too. If you are able to confess the sins that you're causing that separate you from God, the next question you'll have to ask is, are you really wanting to live in a changed way? Are you ready to repent? Just because we can speak the truth with God doesn't mean we are willing to change our lives to live with God. Plenty of folks have confessed to racism and never have changed their behaviors to actually honor people of other races. We might confess the ways that we use them, God's money in selfish ways and, and then not change our spending habits. Often, if I confess something to Brad, he'll ask if I want to change. I have to stop and think honestly about that. And if I do, I'll ask him to hold me accountable to the change that I want to make. One of those practical changes for me has been to not work more than three nights a week and to give at least three of the remaining nights to intentional time with my kids. It's a practical commitment of letting go of work and not relying on myself and instead investing in the relationships that God has entrusted to me. I'm going to ask you to do something that might be a little bit out of your comfort zone. I'm going to ask you to confess your lie to someone else. Now, this is only if you're up for it. You can share it with someone that might be in the room with you or someone that you trust that you can follow up with later. Uh, you can do that by confessing something on a prayer card that you can use on a QR code. If the person isn't in the room with you, shoot them a text or send them a note in the mail. And you might feel convicted to repent now of this. Maybe not. Confession is the first step and repentance is the second. It's okay if you're not ready to repent right now to change the way that you're living because I think that the same way God's Spirit convicted me in my dorm years ago, like that spirit is at work in each of us, inviting us into this life that's more in sync with Jesus. And that same spirit will be at work now and in the future. Not going to let you off the hook. <laughs> so what happens in an authentic Christian community when we show up and are honest about our sin and our need for a savior? Well, we're able to reconcile our filtered selves and our real selves. When we walk through life with others who love us, pray for us, and allow us to love and pray for them, we will experience a reconciliation internally within ourselves, communally with others, and spiritually with God that is simply not possible when we're apart. 
It's so much easier to keep up false appearances when we keep each other at arm's length. But when we do this, when we really lean into forgiveness and into the reconciled relationship that it produces, then that kind of kingdom community can become a radical force for multiplying forgiveness in a world that is desperate for healing and hope. Because, friends, our church isn't about our pastors or about any of you. It's not about us being perfect. We gather to proclaim that if we confess the reality of our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us from all our sins. God sees you and knows you and loves you, High Rock. In the name of Christ Jesus, you are forgiven.